Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. Hello, everybody. This is Linda Khoury, Arabiyat co-host. Welcome to the first episode of Arabiyat in 2016. My co-host Suraya is not in today. She will be back soon. We're glad to be back, and we have a lot of good stuff coming up for you. But first, my interview with Professor Stephen Salaita. In August of 2014, just two weeks before Stephen Salaita was scheduled to begin work, Chancellor Phyllis Weiss of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign abruptly informed the professor of American Indian Studies that his job offer for a tenured position at the university had been rescinded. His crime? A series of critical tweets about Israel during its most recent bombardment of the Gaza Strip in July 2014. Chancellor Weiss said his dehiring was not due to his critical statements of Israel, but their, quote, uncivil nature. The move to fire Salaita sent shockwaves through the academic world. Thousands of academics even threatened to boycott the university, and Stephen did not take the move lying down. Fast forward a year and a half, last November, a federal court ruled in Salaita's favor. Though he was not rehired, he and the university reached a settlement which awarded him $600,000 after lawyer fees. In his new book, Uncivil Rights, Palestine and the Limits of Academic Freedom, Salaita reflects on his case, his life, and above all, what it means to be an academic fighting the uphill battle for Palestinian rights in America. He's currently based in and speaking to us from his new home in Beirut, where he now holds the Edward Said Chair of American Studies at the University of Beirut. Thanks for joining me today, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about your story a little bit. You were about to start the university and you get this email from the from the chancellor? Yes. Okay. And she has decided not to approve of your of your hiring? The hire had already been approved. Um, her, her office, uh, Chancellor Weiss's office, had actually already um, approved of the hiring. The department had approved, the college had approved, everybody had approved, but the board of trustees, which was, was a, a pro forma approval, you know, in, in you know, the, the past few decades, the board of trustees at the University of Illinois had never rejected a, a hire. So it had gone through the entire governing process. What the, what the email informed me was that, um, you know, it was very brief and non-committal, non-descript. It basically said, um, I don't expect Board of Trustees approval, so you might as well not bother showing up. It was, um, as a, a, a federal judge noted, as the American Association of University Professors noted, as a lot of scholarly organizations noted, it was pretty much an unprecedented move. The, the, something similar hadn't happened in, in, in the past 30 years of higher education hiring. I mean, I'm just going to mention a few of the tweets because people who might have not heard your story um, might be interested to know. So some of them are, let's cut to the chase. If you're defending hashtag Israel right now, you're an awful human being. Um, this is not a conflict between hashtag Israel and Hamas. It's a struggle by an indigenous people against a colonial power. And let's do one more. I refuse to conceptualize Israel-Palestine as Jewish-Arab acrimony. I am in solidarity with many Jews and in disagreement with many Arabs. So there were people, I think, uh, groups protesting against even hiring you to begin with. 
Yeah, they were. It turns out that there were people, sort of po- political operatives in, in working sort of in, in a pro-Israel context that had been um, screenshotting my tweets for around a year. And they, they admitted so sort of later on after the firing occurred and became public. There was also um, sort of a, a, a formal move um, by uh, Zionist groups, including the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and uh, various anonymous donors, uh, pro-Israel donors, to pressure the university into to, to firing me. So, you know, the, the a lot of the pressure that the university received was coordinated in the same way that a, a, a lot of attacks on scholars who are speaking in support of Palestinians are. When we've seen the same thing happening for the, at least the past 25 years. 30 years. In this case, it happened to work in the sense that, that, that they ended up um, getting rid of me. Although you can say that it didn't work in, in, in that they didn't necessarily get away with it. They prevented my ultimate arrival at, at the University of Illinois, but I don't think anybody, the pro-Israel donors, the pro-Israel activists, um, the University of Illinois administration, other people invested in the university's unjust decision had uh, any real sense that they would face the kind of backlash that, that, that the firing quickly generated. So yeah, it's, it's my political viewpoints and it was done um, as, uh, you know, under the guise of, of my supposed anti-Semitism. And then um, there's a famous phrase that, uh, that Chancellor Weiss used to justify the firing in her first, in her first public communication. And that was, um, she was concerned with my um, incivility. Right. And so hence your book, Uncivil Rights, the title of your book. What, why did you call it that? Oh, you know, I guess uh, I was being a little bit punish. <laughs> but, um, you know, but, uh, you know, rights is spelled R-I-T-E-S. And so I, I kind of wanted to, to highlight the, uh, the, the, the fact that uh, the, these notions of civility and incivility are, are performances sometimes in the same way that, that various uh, rights of discourse are. And then uh, the, the, the fact that I was tagged with this, um, I guess, with this uh, uncivil identity, uh, this, this, which implies that, you know, uh, I, I'm not to be trusted in respectable company, that I don't deserve to be in a genteel space like a university. And it, it kind of has all kinds of racist implications when you, you sort of draw it out and think about it. Uh, and, and sort of being marked with... Um, being marked with this uh, identity of of uh, uncivil was something that I, I wanted to play around with, and so in the book I take the opportunity to explore what it means to perform the rights of of incivil- incivility. And and what did you find out? Well, that incivility is as deeply compromised as a as a discursive category that. It's deeply political while pretending to be neutral, that it attaches itself to and arises from all kinds of troublesome histories without acknowledging those attachments. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, the history of colonization, for example, wherein humans were apportioned into categories of, of civilized and uncivilized. And I point out also that my hiring was, and, and firing, of course, happened in the American Indian Studies program. And in the history of American Indians, in the history of the colonization of, of, of North America, the New World, whatever you want to call it, uh, the, the categories of civil and, and uncivil have uh, an extremely violent 
presence that, that hasn't yet been expunged. And so the university ended up kind of reproducing these colonial categories without necessarily being explicitly aware of the ways in which it was offering that reproduction. I mean, do you feel that, you know, for example, you give the example of Angela Davis um, in the 1960s, who was fired twice and charged for murder. Do you think things have changed since the 1960s? Or is it that just Palestinians are, you know, the quote unquote new black? No, I mean, I don't think the the formulation of of Palestinians or Arabs or Muslims more broadly is the new black is is one that that uh, that fully works on on a, a conceptual level. I mean, I think it's 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 a formulation that helps us um, better understand what's happening to to uh, Palestinian scholars in U.S. academia today. But I think the, um, the the terms of similarity between now and and the era of Angela Davis is is even broader. That anybody who is doing work in the service of of contesting, you know, identifying, undermining structural racism, militarism, patriotic bromides, colonization, and so forth is is not necessarily likely, but has the potential to get into trouble because these are the forms of speech within academe that have never fully been protected. If you look at the history of folks um, over the past century who have been fired for making, um, you know, for making controversial statements or, or statements that, that upset powerful constituencies, almost always those people were, were proffering a, a critique of centers of structural power. And in this case, what we're seeing is the, the emergence, um, you know, over the past 30 years of Zionism as, as, as an important center of structural power within the university. But Zionism as a structural power in the university also ties itself to the same forms of coercion and suppression that ended up uh, ended up uh, harming uh, Angela Davis and and other scholars of the late '60s and early '70s, and in that category would also be Howard Zinn and Stoughton Lind and and other folks as well who were fired for their anti-racism and anti-war activism. That's the voice of Professor Stephen Salaita, who is currently based in and speaking to us from his home in Beirut, where he now holds the Edward Said Chair of American Studies at the University of Beirut. So your incident definitely charged up the university campus in Illinois, but also I think, you know, nationally, all academics were paying attention here. And what kind of effect do you think that that had on them and their their work? It had a it had a profound effect. I think that's one of the things that a, a, a lot of us, um, beyond myself, of course, are are still coping with and trying to make sense of. So the American Indian Studies program at the University uh, of Illinois has has been decimated. You know, they're down to one full time faculty member, Robert Warrior, and then somebody who has a a fifty percent appointment in in the department. So it's gone. You know, it's or it's 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 close to gone, and it's a real shame because that was such a strong department. Those in Various ethnic studies fields, you know, have really felt the the, the brunt of the university's decision making, poor decision making, over the past year and a half. 
those in the humanities and the interpretive social sciences more broadly. So there's, I, I think, a, a still a lingering sense of, of profound distrust. And I think it's going to take a very long time for, you know, what's often called the healing process, you know, to, to run its course, if it ever does. And I think it's, it's going to require a, a, a kind of reckoning on the part of the higher ups at the university and then those outside the university in positions of power who pressured the administrators into making this series of ridiculous idiotic destructive decisions and and that reckoning hasn't happened yet and so it's reverberated also I think throughout higher education for lots of reasons but I often suspect that it's just the brazenness of the University of Illinois that caught everybody's attention. We all knew that there were, we all know when we go into this, people, people who are committed to anti-racism work, people who are committed to anti-colonial work, people who stand, vocally stand against Zionism know that there are, these are good conditions that can get us in trouble, but, you know, to be summarily fired in such a, a, a flippant, almost nonchalant manner really drove home the fact of just how much so many of us are unwelcome in, in higher education and the threats to our, our careers and, and livelihoods that exist therein. Yeah, I think it reflects definitely an increased sense of, you know, hubris um, amongst those who seem to be pulling the strings of the university. And I didn't mention in my rundown of your story um, the trove of documents that were released that revealed uh, that there were donors who had pressured people, including donors who had been pressuring the chancellor to fire you. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and the larger, you know, what you described the neoliberal um, university today? Yeah, there, there was, you know, there's there's evidence of, of a, a number of, of, you know, economically well off <laughs> uh, donors who, who sort of threatened to uh, to to withhold you know, future giving to the university were the, the, the hire to be completed. And of course, our position always was that the hire had already been completed. You know, a judge agreed with this. Um, pretty much everybody else who's not an adamant Zionist agreed with us also. I mean, there was really no other choice, if, if uh, you know, other than dishonesty. But um, the, the, the donor pressure was, was a serious issue, and we see the power of donor pressure being applied in all kinds of situations. There was a, a, a mural, I forget the name of the artist, but it's a Palestinian student at York University in Toronto, and it depicts a, a, a bulldozer about to raise an olive tree, which unfortunately is a normal occurrence on the West Bank. And then it shows um, a, seemingly a Palestinian from, from behind, and he has his hands behind his back, and in one of his hands, he's cupping um, a, a stone or two. I think it's two stones. And Paul Bronfman of the, the famous Bronfman Canadian family, uh, hugely influential in international Zionism, threatened the university to withhold donations. He runs a, a film distribution company in Toronto, which has a, a large film industry. And he said that he was going to shut down in internships for students. He wasn't going to let students use his equipment anymore, so forth and so on, unless the university took down um, the painting. The university, to its credit so far, has not relented, and the, the painting continues to stand, but it's a great example of how Zionist donor pressure, which affects numerous universities in the U.S. and, and Canada, has the potential to harm the well-being of all students in the interests of maintaining a particular political fetish around Israel. 
Right? Uh, that's what happened at the University of Illinois. You know, they said, look, if, if, this, if this guy ends up on campus, we're going to pool our donations. And of course, the, the administrators there relented. One of the reasons this works, of, uh, you know, the simplest reason that this works is because um, administrators are, are trained to, to follow money, and they're at the beck and call of, of, of money, and they're beck and call of power and influence, but also as state subsidies and appropriations for higher education in public universities, uh, you know, begin to, to decrease and, and increasingly get slashed, then these universities are, are, are more and more reliant on the largest of private donors, and private donors, unfortunately, have agendas. And in order for for them to be in a position to, to, to make donations, they want their agendas to predominate. The problem of donor influence on universities is extraordinary in this particular moment. Some of it is personal failing, and uh, some of it is administrative failing, and some of it has to do with the structural conditions in which universities in North America are currently situated. But either way, um, you cannot have a properly functioning modern university if hiring and firing is dictated on the whims of, of wealthy donors. It's, it not only contravenes um, all of the principles of, of shared governance and faculty autonomy, but it's simply a horrible idea from the simple standpoint of providing decent education. Despite what you just said about the uh, immense power of Zionist forces and, and money in academia, you say that Israel is now losing the PR battle. Why would you say that in, in the context of what has happened to you in this last couple of years? I, I think that the kind of uh, high-intensity, widespread Zionist repression that, that we're, we're seeing at dozens of universities at the moment is actually proof of, of the fact that those who are interested in freedom and justice for Palestinians are beginning to win. You know, there are all kinds of factors social media, alternative media coverage, you know, so forth and so on. But more, more people in the United States now are familiar with the basic outlines of the story of Palestinian dispossession and Palestinian aspirations for, for freedom. Um, you know, you have a large contingent now of sort of mainstream liberals who, who trend more pro-Palestine than they do pro-Israel. Things are starting to change. In lots of ways, Israel is, is positioned as, as a right-wing or, or Republican or, or neoconservative interest in the United States. That's certainly not completely true, but its largest base of support is, is, is a, a, among a shrinking demographic of American Jews not that the American Jewish demographic is shrinking, the percentage of American Jews who are interested in maintaining Israel as an ideal is shrinking. And it's very visibly shrinking, and poll after poll after poll bears that out. So you have evangelical Christians, you have neocons, right? you have um, you know, Republicans, and you have the elite. This is kind of Israel's base of support. And so there's a real grassroots shift in favor of the Palestinians. And also, uh, uh, a, a set of scholarly and activist conditions that that uh, you know that, that have proved very uh, successful in the dissemination of the Palestinian story or the Palestinian narrative, whatever you want to call it. And in that, it's very difficult now for those who are defending Israel to win the debate, to win the argument. They would much rather shut the argument down. And and it's it's my feeling that it's the mere presence of a Palestinian story, a Palestinian voice that, that has led to, to, to much of, of what I would call um, the, the hysteria, 
you know, around uh, uh, powerful Zionist interests on campus. They just don't want to hear it, and they're hearing it more and more often. I know that Palestine Legal and the Center for Constitutional Rights a few months ago released a story, uh, released a report about instances of, of repression on campus and, and found nearly 300 incidents over the past year and a half. So the problem of repression is, is widespread, but I think that the problem of, of repression also exists in proportion to the success of pro-Palestine activists in, in sort of... Uh, raising their voices, getting the issues heard, uh, telling the story of Israel's founding, telling the story of Israel's military occupation, and so forth. And the, the only effective answer, if you can even call it effective answer, from, from the pro-Israel crowd has been to try to, to shut the whole thing down altogether. You know, this activism you speak of, I know that you're a member of the organizing committee of the U.S. campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel. Um, how has this experience impacted your work in this field? It's affected it in pretty serious ways, you know, so some months after after I was fired, I ended up, you know, filing a lawsuit against the university that, that went on for, you know, probably about uh, 10 or 11 months before it finally got settled. It was recently settled. But, you know, in in conditions of unemployment, you know, when you don't have a steady income, I had to go on the road and give talks. So my only income was was earning honoraria, you know, like a, a, at various venues around the country. We didn't have health insurance, um, you know, so there was no stability. There was no consistency. I had to to really be careful about what I was saying on on email. I had to drop off of the the U.S. ACME organizing committee email list because um, you know were the case to to progress far enough in court, all of this stuff could have been subpoenaed and could have become evidence. And so my entire life was extremely constrained and and restricted. In fact, I only joined back up with um, the U.S. ACME organizing committee like literally two weeks ago, and so I'm just breaking back into that work. So, you know, these these um these acts of of repression don't only you know have the uh, I guess the uh, the potential to scare people from doing activism. They 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 also have the ability, as I've seen in my own experience, uh, to to deeply hinder the ability of of people to engage their 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 work when they're put in a position where they have to uh, sort of uh, chase around uh, chase around a, a stable livelihood and and figure out what they're going to do with their career. So it's it's affected in in those sort of structural ways. But I'd say intellectually, it's it's um, you know, it's 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 taught me a lot, and I'm still trying to to process all of the things I've learned, and still trying to figure out all the things that that I haven't yet learned. Right. In one of your chapters, you write about your very complex identity. Um, you mentioned that you're Jordanian, Palestinian, Christian, partially raised in Latin America, and your Spanish is better than your Arabic. Why did you make a point of explaining this part of your life? Um. That's a really good question. I've never thought thought about it so systematically. People people often, um, you know, when when they learn a little bit more about my background, express interest. So I kind of thought that it it, it makes for a pretty interesting story about uh, you know so many different ways that we as humans can can identify and fully identified as 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 Palestinian. But I don't I don't want the other aspects of of my identity that that are 
important to me to be subsumed into a, a, a singular category that that doesn't define the the totality of of who I am or who I consider myself to be. And I hope in it there's some sort of of useful lesson. And that useful lesson is that one doesn't have to be fully identified with any particular group that that faces struggle or oppression or or colonization in order to be fully committed to its its liberation and to its well-being, right? So it's it's not just that I'm Palestinian that has made me interested in Palestine, although that's played a, a central role, no doubt. It's 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 the fact that I'm a thinking human being. It's the fact that I'm I'm well read. It's the fact that I try my best to be committed to uh to to doing well in this world. It's those things that that have led me to to an interest in in Palestinian um, freedom and Palestinian well-being. And so, in a way, it's 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 an invitation to anybody. Right. No, no matter what uh, their their ethnic or cultural or religious identifications, to take up the causes of those in this world who are 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 suffering. That was the voice of Professor Stephen Salaita. He was talking about his new book and his his last two years of an ordeal of losing his job. Um, over a series of tweets he made during Israel's bombardment of Palestine in July 2014. His new book is Uncivil Rights, Palestine and the Limits of Academic Freedom. He's currently based in Beirut, where he now holds the Edward Said Chair of American Studies at the University of Beirut. Thank you for joining me today, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all, folks. Thank you so much for listening to Arabiyat. Our theme song is by Muqata'a. The track is called Ahyat. You can follow him on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T. You can also get in touch with us at arabiyat.podcast at gmail.com. That's A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T dot podcast at gmail.com. Also, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and our Twitter handle is at Arabiyat. We love your feedback or suggestions for future shows. Until next time, this is Linda Khoury, signing off for Arabiyat.